Welcome again. My name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here and um, very glad to have you with us. If you're joining us for the first time today, we are in uh, about a third of the way through our, a little over a third of the way through our sermon series through the book of Revelation. We're calling our series uh, Reframing Reality because we don't believe that Revelation was written thousands of years ago to be an end times predictor book uh, so that people thousands of years after it was written could use it as a code book to decode what might be coming. We believe Revelation was written to actual people because it says that it is and that it was an apocalyptic letter written to actual people to seven churches in the ancient world. And what it means to be an apocalypse is it's a revelation. It's a pulling back of the curtain. It's showing the viewer something that they wouldn't otherwise be able to see unless the curtain hadn't been pulled back for them. So what Revelation is doing is it is reframing reality, it is revealing reality to the viewer and saying, hey, you're not going to be able to tell that this is what reality is unless it's shown to you. And would you go on this journey, this apocalyptic vision, this journey, John and viewer, to come with me as I show you what reality is from a heavenly perspective. And that vision, that apocalyptic vision in the first century gave courage, gave hope, gave comfort to the original listeners, to the original viewers of Revelation. And it's been doing the same thing for churches ever since. Let me show you reality in a way that you would not be able to see it on your own. And so we're preaching through this book thematically. We're not preaching through it linearly as we're walking. We are going to hit most chapters, but we're not preaching straight through it like that because here's what happens throughout the book. John, the the viewer who's copying down what he's being shown, he gets jumped around. And so we're jumping with him where there will be chapters where he says, well, and then I saw this, like he's in a different part of the heavenly realm. And then, and then he's taken over here to this thing. And, and it doesn't necessarily read chronologically. You're supposed to kind of go on the journey of seeing what John sees and hearing what John sees. There's times where John will get shown something and he doesn't really understand it. And the viewer certainly doesn't understand it. And then about four chapters later, he's shown something else that shows you what he was originally being shown, but then that goes, oh, well, then I got to go ahead like eight more chapters. And then that eight chapters ahead kicks me back to chapter two. And he's kind of being bounced around through the symbols and the images and the visions that he's being shown. And so with all of that crazy, we're trying to preach through it with what themes did John see as he was jumped around? So we're jumping some passage wise, we're jumping to different places to follow the themes that John wants to reveal to us. So last week's theme was the paradox of Jesus, which is all over the book. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. Jesus is both God and man. Jesus uh, was both the, the judge of all the earth and the savior of sinners. He's both. At the center of the universe is this paradoxical Jesus who can't be uh, systematically explained and he doesn't fit neatly in your theological suitcases because he's a paradox. That was, that was what we talked about last week. What does it mean that Jesus is a paradox? And now this week, continuing that theme of paradox, we're looking at this. How does the church, the followers of the slain lamb, the the saints that are mentioned in, in Revelation over and over again, how do God's people continue to embody the paradox of Jesus while they're here on earth? Jesus is a paradox. And then as his followers, if you belong to him, we become a people of paradox. We embody the paradox of Jesus while on earth. And I would say for the purposes of today, we embody the paradox of Jesus, especially when it comes to suffering and how we view suffering, how we engage with suffering, how we walk through suffering. So we're gonna do that today. That's our theme, paradox part two, the paradox of Jesus part two. Now we're gonna walk through 
most of Revelation chapter 11. That's where we're jumping to. We were in chapter 5 last week, saw the lion and the lamb. Now we're jumping to Revelation 11 to continue this theme of the people of God embodying the paradox of Jesus, okay? Just need to warn you though, Revelation 11, pretty much every commentator, scholar, like these are men and women who like gave their whole lives <laughs> to studying the book of Revelation and I'm reading them to try to make sense of some of it for you. Um, they would say... Um, Revelation chapter 11 is the most confusing book in the whole, the most confusing chapter in the whole book. And Revelation is the most confusing book in the whole Bible. So we're about to walk through the most confusing chapter in the Bible, okay? And I'm gonna make it crystal clear, okay? You will have no questions left when I'm done. No, I say that to say that there's gonna be a lot of side roads on this highway that you're gonna wanna go, wait, 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 we gotta get off there. We gotta stop at that rest stop and talk about that. No, we don't. You can hold it, okay? We're, we, we're going we're gonna to keep going, okay? And I don't, want you, I don't want you to get lost in the, wait, I need all my questions answered about this chapter and what does that symbol mean and why did John see that? We're not going to get to all that. What we are going to extract from it is the theme of God's people embodying the paradox of Jesus as it relates to suffering, okay? So, Revelation chapter 11, you ready? Verses 1 through 17. This is John. He's being jumped around, showing different visions, it says, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Verse four, these, that's the witnesses, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They, the witnesses, have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying and they, may, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Verse seven, and when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the two prophets, the two witnesses, had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Okay, so this is a crazy chapter, noted, 
So much symbolism, so much imagery going on. John is seeing so many things. And in the first few verses, John's given this measuring stick and he goes and he's told to go measure the temple, but not certain parts of the temple because certain parts of the temple are gonna be destroyed. Again, a lot of symbolism going on. But then in verse three, he introduces us to what he sees is the main characters of this whole chapter. These two witnesses. And a lot of debate has gone into who are these two witnesses and the story of chapter 11 follows these two witnesses and what happens to them. And so a lot of people have tried to figure out who do these two represent, who do these two witnesses, who are they? But remember, we don't believe Revelation is an end times predictor book so that the church thousands of years after it was written could use this book to line up who are these two witnesses and oh, I bet it was like Billy Graham and Charles Spurgeon. No, it wasn't, okay? Like that's not what it's doing for us. That's not that would have been of no help to the churches reading this letter for the first time, right? That's not what it's doing. It's actually far bigger than that. They represent, these two witnesses represent something far more beautiful than who are the two people from history that this is talking about or predicting. There are some very symbolic clues here. If you look back at verse three and verse four, you can show this up there, Will. It says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. These are the two olive trees and lampstands. The two witnesses are also symbolically the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Okay, if you know your Bible, you know some symbolism. You know that earlier in the book of Revelation, we're told in chapters two and three, Jesus is among the lampstands, which are the churches, the, lamp, the seven lampstands from, we're told this by Jesus in Revelation one and two and three, the lampstands represent the church. And then if you know your macro Bible, you know that all throughout Old and New Testament, whenever Jesus is using the image of an olive tree, it's always talking about his people. The olive tree is the great symbol biblically for the people of God. And so here's what you just got told by two different symbols for the witnesses. The images tell you that the witnesses represent the church, the people of God, those that belong to the king. And really no matter, there's a lot of different interpreters that would, would throw a couple ideas of what, those, what the two witnesses are and what they represent. But all of them really circle back to say, if you kind of remove the reality that this is not a predictor book for us, but this is how we interpret it, these two witnesses, no matter how you skin it, they represent the church. In some way, these two witnesses represent the people of God and all who belong to Jesus. So what this chapter is all about, what it's representing for you, big picture, is the church. The storyline and the themes for these two witnesses is teaching us about the storyline and the theme of the church, the people of God, those who belong to Jesus. And here's the overview. I'm going to give you one paragraph summary of chapter 11, okay? We're not going to talk about all the symbols in it, but here's what essentially happens to the two witnesses, to the church, to the people of God, Old and New Testament, anyone who's belonged to the Lord since time began, here's what it's saying to you. These two witnesses are given power to testify in the world and they prophesy and they testify and they share words. And then after a season of witnessing, they're killed. But not long after they're killed, three and a half days later, not long after they're killed, they're resurrected. Many are drawn to them and their message and justice is served to their enemies. And then there's this final seventh trumpet that blows and the kingdom of God is ushered in. The kingdom of God descends to the world and the kingdom of God and all of his people reign on earth forever and ever together. Okay, that's a 
Very simple recap of chapter 11, the two witnesses, the church in chapter 11, what happens to them. So what does this show us about a paradox? What does it show us about embodying the, par- the paradox of Jesus? Well, these two witnesses, like we said, represent the church, the people of God. It's interesting, though, that John uses a word here for them. They're called the witnesses. The church is compared to a witness. The Greek word for witness is the word martyr. Now, that word has come to mean uh, someone who suffers and is persecuted and is maybe even killed for their faith. They're a martyr. But in its original context in the first century, that's not what that word meant. That word was just a Greek word that meant someone who testifies, someone who bears witness in a courtroom setting, expressing and, and showing what they have experienced or seen or heard. They're just testifying. They're just witnessing, martyr. They're martyrs. Now, again, it would go on to mean those who get killed, and we'll talk about that. But really, in its original context, John's just saying, I saw these two witnesses, these two martyrs, these two people who testified in court, and they represent the whole church. They represent all the people of God. They are witnesses. The people of God are witnesses in a courtroom, as if the whole world were a courtroom. So what trial is going on in the world that would need the church to be the witness for? What trial is going on? What are we to bear witness about? What, what question needs a verdict? What, what question is everyone asking in the courtroom of reality that needs an answer? The question is this. This is the question on trial. Does the divine exist? Now, you may not sit around and ask that question. You may not sit around and think, all my friends are asking that question. But let me tell you some other ways that that question gets asked. Other versions of that same question. Other questions that come from that ultimate question, does the divine exist? What's real? Is God real? Is anything real? Is my experience real? Is my story real? Is anything real and does anything ultimately matter? Why are we here and what are we doing here? All of those questions find their root, find their source from the real question, which is, does the divine exist? Is the divine real? There's far too much evil and far too much heartache and far too much blood on the ground if we can't answer that question and all the questions that come from it. And everybody's asking these questions. Everybody you know is asking these questions. Richmond, North of Richmond, and and mud burning man party goers, and earthquake victims in Morocco, and everybody in between. Everybody's asking this this question. There is a trial. Is the divine real? And guess what the answer to that question is? The divine is real. Which means the answer to all the subsequent questions is also true. Everything and more is real. Everything and more matters. Your life matters. The world matters. What you do with your life matters. Your pain matters. Your hope matters. Your longing matters. Justice matters. It all matters. That's the answer to the question. That's, that's, the verdict for the trial of the world is it's real. The divine is real and everything that flows from that. And guess who holds the keys to the treasure chest of that golden answer? Guess who's supposed to display the answer to those questions? The church. The church is to answer that question. Is the divine real? Jesus says in the gospels, I'm giving you church the keys of my kingdom. Open up the treasure chest and share the good news. The church is to testify. The church is to bear witness. The church is to give an account of who the real God is to a very real watching world. The divine is real. The church is supposed to answer it. 
And here in Revelation chapter 11, and in Jesus' ministry, and in his great commission, Matthew 28, he sends the church out to bear witness in the great trial of the courtroom of the world. He sends his church out to bear witness that the divine is in fact real, that Jesus is in fact resurrected from the grave. In Acts chapter one, when he's right before he ascends and he sends his church into the world for the first time, he says, you are to be my witnesses and bear to the truth that you saw a resurrected Jesus, that you saw me go in the grave and you saw me get out of it. Go and bear witness, testify to that. And look at the power that he gives to the church. Look at when he tosses them the keys to the treasure chest of that answer, that the divine is real. Look at the power that he says comes with that. He says that in Matthew 28 too, in his great commission, he says it all over. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now I'm giving it to you. Look at that that theme continue in our chapter, Revelation 11. Look at verses three through six. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, to my church, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These, the witnesses, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Okay, can you imagine being the church that first is hearing this vision from John, the two witnesses, the olive tree, the the lampstands, we are them. And then the next three lines say, and let me tell you about the power you're gonna have. I'm gonna be a dragon. I'm gonna gonna shoot fire from my mouth and nothing's gonna stand in my way. We gotta go bear witness about the beauty of Jesus in the world and look at all this power and authority we're gonna have. This is gonna be awesome. Nothing's gonna stand in our way. We We get to use our power as often as we desire from this authority that King Jesus has given us to bear witness about him in the world, sign me up. Verse seven. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. What, what, what? What, what about the I get to destroy everyone who tries to stand in my way? What about like the fire breathing? What about, what about all the stuff that I have this power to testify and nothing can stand in my way? And then there's this line about, wait, 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 I don't use all the power that I've been given and I actually get weaker and I get conquered and I get killed? Here's what chapter 11 is telling you about bearing witness in the world. You're gonna suffer. Let's pray. No, I'm kidding. It's telling you you're gonna suffer while you do this. In fact, it goes one level deeper. The life of the church bearing witness will not only include suffering, but the life of the church bearing witness that includes suffering, you will bear witness by how you suffer. How you walk through suffering will be your testimony to the question, is the divine real? That's actually how you are a martyr. Again, not that you're all gonna get killed for doing it, but you will suffer and die. You will die to yourself. You will die a thousand deaths. There will be pain. And how you walk through that pain will be your testimony. The church is gonna suffer. This reorients everything we wanna believe about this thing called Christianity. And I would say, even if you're in the room and you're not a Christian, this this reorients everything we wanna believe about the world. Like, 
you don't want your life to go a certain way. You don't want your life to be marked by different realities. And so Christian or not Christian, but especially Christian, we sign up for this thing expecting this thing called Christianity with all the authority we've been given to not have any suffering. We want to be powerful. We want to be victorious. We expect not to suffer. And I don't care your Enneagram number or your birth order or your Myers-Briggs, no one likes suffering. No one enjoys it. But there is this little part in us that we still kind of expect not to. Like we still kind of sign up for this thing expecting, I don't think my life should be marked by these trials. I don't think my life should have these thorns. I don't think this should be my reality. We act as if it shouldn't be happening to us. I shouldn't have to have this surgery. I shouldn't have lost the one that I loved. I shouldn't have to deal with the home that I grew up in. I shouldn't have to have these financial stresses. I shouldn't have to have this addiction. I shouldn't have to have this marriage. I shouldn't have to have this troubled child. I shouldn't have to have this. That's not the way I wanted my life to go. That's not the way I expected this thing to roll out. And in some ways, you're right. You shouldn't have to have this. Suffering was not a part of God's good creation in the garden. He didn't intend for it. He never planned for divorce or death or dysfunction. That was not in his scope of painting a beautiful canvas of the world. But sin shattered the world in Genesis 3. And so while God didn't originally intend suffering, when we get surprised by it or act like it shouldn't be happening to us, we're the ones living in a fantasy land, not reality. When we walk through life expecting not to suffer, we're the ones with wool pulled over our eyes. We're the confused ones. Because a sin-wrecked world means that suffering is to be expected. And everybody suffers. Everybody hurts. Ask REM, you know, 90s rock shout out for you. Like it, it is a reality of life that you will suffer but we expect in this journey home, we expect to already be home. We expect to live in a pain-free and suffering-free world. And that's a fantasy land because the Christians should know this better than anybody. We're not home yet. James K. Smith wrote a book about four or five years ago, one of my favorite books of the last decade called On the Road with St. Augustine. But he talks about this collision of we expect that our journey home should feel like home already is the root of all of our discontentment. <laughs> like we think that the road home should feel like home and there could be pit stops on the road home where I will feel finally and fully at home. But the Christian knows that's not happening. You're never gonna feel at home on the road home. The road home will be full of suffering the road home will be full of besetting sins. The road home will be full of relationships you can't fix, full of sickness, sorrow, pain, and death. That's what the road home's gonna be like. And even if you know that or you've heard that before, we still would love for the road home to have minimal suffering. Or at least we would love for the road home that if I like stub my toe on the rock on the road home and now I'm hurting, we would love for us to have the ability to mitigate the suffering and not make it be so grand. We would love to navigate our way through the suffering so that it doesn't last too long. Ultimately, we want victory over our suffering now so it can go away. There's a couple ways I think we want victory of, over our suffering when we encounter it. And this is a subtle one, but it's a real one. One of the ways we want victory over our suffering so that it doesn't hurt so bad is we want victory through understanding. 
that if I can understand my pain, if I can understand why this happened, if I can understand what God's doing and why he allowed this, then it wouldn't hurt so bad. So we want victory over our suffering through understanding our suffering as if fully understanding it would make the pain go away anyway. What if you were given all the reasons why your suffering has been allowed to happen and you still didn't like the reasons? What if you didn't agree with it? Understanding is not your path to victory over the suffering. The other way we want victory over our suffering is we want victory by victory. Like I had this hard thing happen, I got sent to this valley, but I put on my full armor of God and I defeated it. Like I, I was in a valley, but I bootstrapped myself and I made myself into a mountaintop. They make movies about all this, right? I want that to be my life. I had this hardship, but I overcame it. I want victory through victory or I want victory through understanding. But here's what the church has promised and nothing more. You will get victory through your suffering. You don't get victory through understanding. You don't get victory through victory. You get victory through suffering. You get strong by becoming weak. The followers of the lamb know that suffering is actually the way to victory. How do followers of the lamb know that suffering is the way to victory? Because that's what happened to Jesus. His path to the right hand of God the Father included a cross. He was, being, he was ascending to the throne while he was dying. It was a blood-marked path for him to get the victory that he came to achieve. That's his paradox. The lamb has been slain and yet he's standing on a throne. The path to the throne included bloodshed for Jesus. So the same will be true for his followers because we embody that paradox now. We embody that reality of the way up is actually the way down. I'm actually gaining victory through my suffering. To bear witness means you will suffer here and how the church suffers is how they testify to the question on trial. And so followers of the lamb are actually able to bear their suffering because they know that no matter what valley you're in or you will go through, no matter the valley, this valley is not the end of the story. No suffering can take away the victory that is coming to you because it's the victory that Jesus has already won for you. And no matter what you're going through, no matter the pain, no matter the thorn, no matter the death, no matter the sorrow, none of it can take away the victory that's coming to you because of what the lamb has accomplished for you. And so whatever you're in is not the end of the story. Look with me at verse 11 and then skip down to verse 15, Will. This is saying the same thing is after the witnesses have been killed. It says, but after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Verse 15, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there was loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. This is what's true for the Christian, no matter what horror you're in. This is what's true for the Christian, no matter what pain you are feeling, no matter what unknown valley of the shadow of death you're about to walk through. None of it can take away the victory that's coming to you. Here's what the Christian is guaranteed. Resurrection will come after death. And for the witnesses in this passage, they represent the church, remember? They were killed, they died. But here's what was more true about them. Their suffering didn't ultimately end in death, even though they died. Their death wasn't the end of the story. Their story ended in victory. Their story ended in resurrection. And that's what will be true for you too. 
See, if the lamb is already victorious, then we can know with certainty now that none of our suffering is the end of the story. None of the suffering we face can ultimately destroy us or ultimately take away the victory that is coming to us. None of it can. This is the whole second half of Romans chapter eight. I am convinced, Paul says, that neither height nor depth nor angel nor demon nor death nor life, nothing in all of creation can stop God from loving you and stop what's coming to you because of the victory of Jesus. Nothing can stop it. And so if you know that, if you know that nothing's stopping the resurrection that's coming to you, then no valley you're in right now can write the end of the story for you. Nothing can tell you that this is it and this is the end. And actually, if you believe that, if you're held by that, if you're caught up in that, then suffering actually does the opposite than merely take things from you. Suffering actually ends up leading you to a place where you are more filled Suffering removes any mirage on the road home of us thinking that this road home is our home. Because you can, you can have a hallmark life and everything can go great and you make all the money and have all the kids and do whatever you want to do and you will be living in a fantasy land avoiding all the pain that's around you. But when you suffer on the road home, guess what you're no longer fooled by? That this road will be my home. And it hurls you to Jesus who carries you on the road and he carries you home. And those who suffer know that more than those who avoid it. So suffering actually leads us to a deeper intimacy with Jesus. It doesn't end up taking from us only. It gives us that too. And so if all that's true, the church can actually begin to suffer well. And when the church suffers well, we bear witness to the question that the world is asking. If we know that nothing can take away our ultimate victory, and we know that on the road home we will meet Jesus in sweeter and deeper ways through our suffering, it allows us to suffer well. Let's just be real people. We deal with reality instead of fantasy. It lets us be empathetic people. It lets us be people who are bearing witness about the question, is the divine real? The way that we suffer will prove to the world whether we believe that or not. Here are three ways that I believe knowing the victory of the lamb and knowing that the road home is never meant to feel like home. Here's how the church begins to bear witness and suffer well. The first, at least three ways, here are three ways. It makes us a people who are full of sorrow. Here's what I mean by that. We don't pretend like life's not hard. Christians should be the greatest criers in the room. Because we know, because we know this valley is not the end, I'm free to feel the full weight of this valley and weep over it and cry over it and grieve. I'm not a robot, I'm a human being. And so I weep and lament and I can know that no matter how many tears I cry in this well, it is not the bottom of the well. So I don't have to be afraid of my tears. I can actually be a good griever and not pretend like grief isn't really hard. So we're full of sorrow. That's one way we suffer well. The other way is we're full of acceptance. We don't deny our suffering. We don't numb our suffering. We don't rage against the heavens as if something strange were happening to us. That's what Peter says in his epistle. We accept it. We make peace with the suffering. Because victory is coming and nothing can take away the resurrection that's coming to me, because the lamb is on the throne and he has already achieved for me this victory, I can enter into this valley on the road home and know that this suffering is just part of my journey home but this suffering is not the end of my journey. So I can accept it and not fight against it and not try my fastest to get out of it. I can accept my suffering and make peace with it. The third is this, full of sorrow, full of acceptance. And then last is full of humility. 
The Christians who are bearing witness and suffering well don't ever compare their suffering with other people. My wife and I joke about the suffering Olympics and everybody thinks they're the only medalist. Like, do you know that Jesus, who suffered more than anybody, never not once found a widow or found someone with leprosy or found someone who was bearing a child and said, look, I know this is hard, but do you know what I'm about to go through? Like he never, he never used his suffering as a way to shame them for theirs. And he never turned the conversation of pain back to himself to make them feel like their suffering wasn't as great as his. And the church doesn't do that either. Here's what Jesus did. He let people have their pain and he empathized with them. Full of humility in his suffering. He wasn't making them see him and making, making every conversation about suffering about himself. He just let their pain be their pain and he empathized with them without making it all about him. So the Christian, the church, the witnesses walk with humility in our suffering, full of sorrow, full of acceptance, full of humility. And when we embody those things in our suffering, we become a people of great paradox because we're grieving, but we have hope. And we know that there's death that we're facing, but resurrection is coming. So we can hold the tension of the complexities of life and we are bearing witness to the question on trial. And when we do that, people don't understand it. They, they don't have a category for it, that the church would mirror the paradox of Jesus and bear witness in how they suffer. They would hold both things and they would be answering, we would be answering the question, the divine is real. How else could anybody suffer that way? How else can you suffer and be full of sorrow, full of acceptance and full of humility? No one suffers that way. How can you do that? Because the divine is real. Some of y'all have seen it potentially several years ago on 60 Minutes, my favorite show. You guys all watch fake shows like Yellowstone and Ted Lasso. I watch real things like 60 Minutes because I'm 80, but <laughs> uh, love 60 Minutes. A few years ago, an interview Anderson Cooper did with Stephen Colbert. Anybody seen that? Four of you? Great. So it's going to hit hard. This, this, it's, go watch it. Go, go YouTube it. It's so good. Both of these men, Stephen Colbert and Anderson Cooper, have suffered immensely tragic losses throughout their life, and they talk about it. But one of the things that Anderson Cooper says to Stephen Colbert is he says you, you, they're talking about their suffering and their loss and their tragedy. They've lost family members. It, it, they've had hard lives and they're, and they're empathizing with each other. But then one of the things Anderson Cooper says to Colbert is he says, you've gone on record before to say that you're grateful for the thing that you wish had most not happened to you. And he's looking down at his paper and then he looks up and he's weeping. And he says, do you, do you believe that? Like, do you, do you actually believe? Are you actually grateful for the thing that you wish had most never happened to you? And Colbert says, I do. And he's full of sorrow. He goes on to say, I don't wish that it had happened. I'm not celebrating it. I've grieved it, but I've accepted it. And I walk in and I don't act like it's not there. And I walk with a limp, but he's so humble about it. All that he does is he turns that conversation about his suffering into empathy for Anderson Cooper. And Anderson Cooper can't take it. He can't make sense of it. How can you suffer like that? Colbert is very explicit. He says, because of my faith, because of my tradition. And he says, and I didn't learn this. I realized it. Like it happened to me on this road home. I had, I had to make peace with my suffering 
And he's full of sorrow and full of acceptance and full of humility. And the world can't make sense of that. The world can't make sense of a lamb that's been slaughtered that's also on the throne. The, the world can't make sense of a, of a people that believes that the way up is the way down. And the world can't make sense of a people who actually believe that their victory comes through their suffering. And when the church believes that, we will be bearing witness to the question on trial. Is the divine real? The only way we can suffer well is if you know the answer to that question. So may we be a people who learns to suffer well, to suffer full of sorrow, full of acceptance and full of humility. Let's pray. Jesus, man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief, you are the great paradox. Would you guide us through faith, through grace in becoming a people who embody this paradox that we are testifying to the world not through our victory and not through our understanding, but through our suffering, we're testifying to who the divine is. May we be a people full of sorrow, full of acceptance, full of humility. Transform us into that, that we would embody what you have already done for us, that the victory of the lamb is coming. and We are not home yet. And Father, there are some of us in the room who need you to carry us on the road right now. It's hard and we've stumbled and, and it's full of heartache. And we know that we're not home yet, but would you, would you remind us that you're with us on the road, carrying us home, where resurrection will conquer death one day, Jesus. We ask all this in your name, amen.